Welcome to the Currently Thinking podcast, where we talk about issues that move the world. We discuss current events, business, tech and politics. Our mission, bringing bold visions to your headphones. Are you ready to think with us? I'm Soph. And I'm Barry. And we are your hosts for today. Today's topic of the Currently Thinking podcast is the universal basic income. Extraordinary times like this ask for extraordinary measures. The corona crisis has left governments grasping left, right and center for effective responses. And we may be at a turning point or critical juncture in our history. The current situation is changing our economic and social systems, challenging the way we think about ourselves and our lives. It is for this reason that in our very first episode, we're going to explore whether the time for the universal basic income has arrived. Barry, why don't you kick us off with a bit of an overview of the concept of UBI and the debate around it? In terms of like what the concept of UBI is, and so when I did a bit of research on this, I mean, there's some different definitions, but I suppose how we will be using it in this session is really it's an amount of money equal for everyone given by the government to citizens with no strings attached, no requirements to f fulfill anything. Um, to receive that money. And, you know, some argue that it should replace all other forms of welfare. Um, some say it should be kind of a supplement to, to all these other welfare tools that are being used. I mean, we, we are just discussing the concept of UBI in, in, in general, and we'll get into what we think about whether it's, you know, it's a supplement or more, more, um, standalone thing. Um, I mean, the idea of UBI is a very old concept, isn't it, Sophie? I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's been particularly, um, like, the history of it has been particularly rich in the US, in the American context. Proponents of it were people like Milton Friedman, actually. Um, he had the idea of a negative income tax to guarantee kind of a minimum income to all Americans. Another proponent was Martin Luther King. He argued for the concept of a guaranteed income. And actually, really interestingly, uh, President Richard Nixon, a Republican, he proposed this uh, plan called the Family Assistance Plan, which was based on uh, Friedman's negative income tax model. And the plan would have provided an average family with around $1,600 a year. It wouldn't have necessarily been unconditional or universal, but it was kind of something that came really close to a national UBI. And funnily enough, the reason why this plan didn't succeed was because people thought it wasn't enough and it was going to be rewritten with a larger amount to be given to the families. But then eventually it just didn't pass through. So it's funny how 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 it got rejected. And if, if it hadn't been with that amount, it, it might have been now in place in the US. And more recently, I suppose... People that have been talking about this concept are people like Andrew Yang, um, a Democratic contestant for the U.S. presidential race. He's a businessman and he ran on a UBI platform, which he referred to as the Freedom Dividend. And also in Silicon Valley, people have been quite advocates of the idea of UBI, especially in the face of automation. And we'll touch on that um, in a little bit as well. Um, but it's a really interesting place to kind of... Um, have that topic arise. And in a nutshell, I suppose, I mean, what is the debate about? So it's really about kind of the people who stand 
in favour of UBI who say, you know, it increases the standard of living, it eradicates poverty, you know, it future-proof society because we can mitigate the effects of, of, of automation and, and other tech that might put people out of uh, a job. And it allows creativity and freedom to kind of be an entrepreneur for yourself and innovate. But then on the other hand, some people argue, you know, how are we going to pay for this? It's so expensive. People get lazy and they'll spend their money on gambling or alcohol, etc. And they won't have an incentive to work. And actually, another argument against it is, you know, employers will pay lower wages because they know people will get money um, elsewhere. So a lot of people against it say it's, it's just too big of an idea to, to for it to be sustainable and for it to be, you know, implemented on a on a large scale. So and and also some of the arguments as to why we should have a UBI or why not, they're very interesting because some of them seem to look at UBI kind of as a as if it's a policy that exists in itself that exists in a vacuum. You know, people will say, oh, it doesn't work because people get lazy or there's no uh, incentive to work or something like that. But um, I, I feel that these discussions tend to look at these small, um, you know, experiments and then say, okay, this is how people react. Um, yeah. But, but I think what we really wanted to do um, here in this podcast, or, or at least, you know, in our own thoughts also, was look at what is the context in which, um, you know, such a radical um, idea and, and policy eventually would exist. Yeah, and I, I suppose when you say kind of these arguments and these experiments almost look at it like we're in a vacuum, I think that really is such an interesting statement to make because I suppose how I've been thinking about it recently a lot is really very much as kind of a response to a economic crisis and like as a tool to leverage when kind of you're looking to mitigate for economic crisis that has uh, is there. And I think that kind of touches on our, on our first lens that we wanted to to tackle and have a look at uh, UBI, which is kind of the idea of corporate welfare versus people welfare. And a lot of people are, are arguing, you know, we're, we're going to enter into the largest depression or recession um, in time that we can remember. And you know, maybe the UBI is something that could be used as kind of a way to kind of come out of that recession. I think there's a, there's a couple of arguments that are interesting to look at in, in that aspect. Because if you kind of compare how we how previous crises were dealt with, if we, if we take the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis, a lot that happened there was very much around um, let's, kind of bail out large financial institutions, which are too big to fail for us. You know, we can't, our, our economy will not be able to kind of survive the failure of, of these large systemically important um, institutions. So governments can let them go bust. But then we kind of understood that bit of the government reaction. But then afterwards, you know, when we entered into that recession, when people got laid off, still a lot of the kind of rescue packages were still around industry like industry focused rather than looking at is there a way to kind of directly help people because I suppose the assumption there was you know if we help industry that will spur economic activity and then we'll make sure that these companies won't go bust and help people be employed but another way of looking at it is you know actually what you want what you might want to do during an economic crisis is spur demand right and you can spur demand by directly giving 
the people money um, that they could spend. I suppose another a counter argument for that is while people might be just saving their money, they're not going to spend it in in, in in crises. And what do you think in terms of is there kind of a sort of momentum in in, in our current governments to move towards a policy like that as as a way to you know respond to a crisis? What what do you think? Yeah, I think. Um... I mean, looking at the current governments that we have, um, most of them, uh, I mean, looking at the UK, for instance, uh, the German government, we see a lot of conservative heads of states. Um, so you would think that um, ideologically, you know, having a big social security spending is not really um, a priority. But we do. We did see in the budgets, both of um, the UK that was um, released a couple of months ago, as well as the budget of Germany, the German government, um, which was released just a couple of days ago, yeah. that spendings are indeed going up, and that there are government uh, spendings. Government spendings, exactly. Yeah. Government spending is going up, especially spending towards people uh, with. Yeah, financial insecurity, uh, people who have lower incomes. And and what's interesting also about the budget of Germany is that, yeah. you know, literally in the news, people say the message of the Chancellor Merkel is that you should spend money on things. You should go mm. and buy things. This is sort of the assumption that they made, that they're making. I think, you know, like, obviously all, all governments are trying to get people spending, but... If you are from a, if you've kind of lived through this experience, you will forever be marked and scarred by by the fact that, you know, oh my God, I need to always have an emergency fund because you never know what something like COVID is going to hit. I mean, for me personally, that's what I, that's what I'm thinking, right? I'm like, mm -hmm. actually, how unprepared are some of us <laughs> for something like this to hit? And the fact that governments are trying to make us spend it's just, I don't know, almost hits the nail on the head of perhaps therefore you should have a balance between focusing on, you know, industry packages, help packages, etc., and kind of people packages that, you know, create that confidence in, in people's minds that they are, you know, it's fine to spend, like no problem. You'll be fine. You know, with I mean, I'm not quite sure what that policy would exactly look like. I mean something like UBI maybe. But creating that sense of safety I think would would be one one way forward to spend, but you can't just try and make people spend when they've lived through such an experience right now, where they forever will think, or forever at least for in our short term memories will think, you know, it's not safe to spend. That's totally right. Yeah, but I think um, we might also need to distinguish between like um, or or think look at who could we spend for or what could we spend on. Mm -hmm. And you do see a lot of, you know, movements or initiatives that are aimed even right now at, you know, these hashtags by local or Instagram yeah. promoting local businesses and, and entrepreneurs. And there is also a movement of, you know, showing solidarity and the notion that through your buying power, you actually make a, an economic, a social, maybe even a political statement, statement, yeah, yeah. Or, or support at least. So, yeah, I think this is, um, these are really interesting times. And I think the awareness that it gives people on what, you know, their income and their spending means and the power that it ha has and how it interacts, you know, with, with the system and with each other is, yeah, that's quite interesting. It is, it is.
There's also a notion within society, I mean, around this, like whether, you know, we want um, our governments to, to focus on, to continue focus on corporate welfare, so to say, versus the, the welfare of, of its people. Um, yeah, and you do see quite a trend um, in terms of people wanting or rather protesting against you know, bailing out one bank after the other, bailing out one big company after the other, even if it means there might be jobs uh, affected. Um, we don't, I think people are gaining some sort of critical awareness um, that, that makes them feel that it's not really ending up with them directly. Yeah. I think 100% yes in previous crises, right? Or like post-previous crisis. I think this one though, It's quite different because governments have kind of approached it from, or they have had to, you know, approach it from the kind of people angle. So they've had to give people lump sums. They've had to look at SMEs because if small and medium enterprises, you know, shut down, that means that even more people get unemployed and even more people lose their livelihoods. So I think because the impact would have been so direct in this case, rather than trickle down through a couple, like a couple of months or a couple of years of crises, governments have been kind of reacting immediately, obviously because otherwise their economies would have gone, you know, bust. So that's why I think this, this like COVID is so such an interesting time in, 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 in history or type of crisis that will come about is because governments have reacted like almost like wartime period types of spending levels, both on the people like both for individual citizens as well for small and medium enterprise, as well for big, big, large, like airlines, for instance. So it would be just really interesting to see how that plays out. And of course, kind of how effective a government policy is, is also dependent on like how, um, how big the crisis is and how deep the crisis is, right? Because if this is going to be one of the big, largest crises we've ever encountered, how quickly we get out of it and how effective government policy is, is also very much dependent on that. Well, we also have to acknowledge that this, this crisis is really a crisis mostly, or most immediately at least, of, you know, uh, the individual. And this is very different, you know, from the 2008 crisis where it was most immediately, it was a crisis of a bank. Yeah. And that then, like you said, trickled down to the individual. So in terms of uh, empirical evidence, there have been done a lot of studies um, at micro levels, you know, ranging from we give um, 10 people, for example, 10 homeless people, you know, some money uh, every month up for, for maybe a year, um, up to larger studies uh, where um, you, you target a population of sort of an entire village or an entire city over a couple of years. And so, I mean, overall, the evidence seems to be rather conclusive in terms of really showing that it, um, UBI has the potential to improve um, the, the human um, level of well-being or the, the, like how well people are, are doing. It seems to increase, um, obviously, spending power and... I mean, that spending power doesn't necessarily trans or need to translate into well-being. Yeah. But um, it does open the opportunity for spending on, you know, good food, on having a house over your head, a decent one, 
um, having comfortable clothes, um, education, you know, being able to, to, to buy books and, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and uh, well, yeah, and also increasing or at least um, affecting mental health um, mm. dimensions as well. So, you know, because there is a clear evidence, um, clear evidence that, that shows that having a level of insecurity in your life, whether it's physical or financial, or sometimes it's, it's the two of them, it decreases your ability to think clearly, to think rationally, to be compassionate and to be well content and, and happy, really. And, and that, you know, can create um, like a vicious cycle in which people are not able to do certain things because they're not, you know, financially able in the first place. I find that such an interesting finding, you know, that it actually, I mean, messes maybe is a big word, I'm not sure, but that it messes with your rationality and how far we can even take rational decisions, right? We don't need to go into that yeah. debate, but I find that such an interesting finding because it's, I don't know, it, you know, a lot of people also argue that, oh yeah, measures like UBI or lump sum payments just make you lazy and you will probably spend on, you know, the classic argument is, oh, people will spend it on drugs or alcohol or gambling, etc. But a lot of these studies I've actually found, you know, that doesn't happen. Money is not spent on frivolous things, but is actually really saved and spent in a frugal manner. Just I think that just shows how or how usually sometimes people think about things like UBI completely are busted. Yeah, exactly. And and I think here the question is also who are you know who are the people who spend it, spend the money they get um, on gambling or in alcohol? Like, what is their starting point? Yeah. Under what conditions do they get money? What is their, what are their overall perspectives in life? And those are things that you cannot ignore when you look at how they're spending their money, because if they're already mentally and socially, um, you know, excluded or in a place where they don't see a point, really, you know, and and putting money to like investing in their own growth for instance mm. well it you could say it's a rational decision to not try and you know quote unquote wasted to to those things because you feel like you're trapped anyway and then you need to look at that systemic you know um those those traps that people feel in like they're in and how you how you can resolve them and ubi de i think definitely is is one tool to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think it could, could be naive to assume that UBI in itself, you know, if you only provide money to someone, they will, you know, do behave in a certain way because that's not how people are, right? No. I mean, no, like the world doesn't work that way. Like that's again, like looking at it as a vacuum. There needs to be an understanding of, you know, the, the human as an economic being, but they're also a social being and they're also a psychological being. And so, you know, what you see, um, for example, in international development programs, which is an interesting uh, place to look at for evidence as well, mm -hmm. you see that sometimes um, cash transfer programs, so that's kind of the term for, for UBS, so cash-based um, universal basic income programs in the developing world, you see there that often these cash transfer programs are accompanied with some social, with, with programs that target um, the social dimension of people as well. So for instance, you would, you know, if you were to support female entrepreneurs, you don't just throw money at them, no. but you basically have a conversation with them on 
how to, so what are the challenges that they're facing in their daily lives? Do they have bank accounts? Do they have a place to safely store the money? Do they know, are they, you know, do they have a level of financial literacy that, um, you know, enables them really to use the money in a way that makes sense to them? And I think those things are really, you know, important dimensions, you know, when you talk about these things. Of course, you might run the risk in being perceived or actually being patronizing in a way. Mm -hmm. Because I think we've all, like all of us, you know, have heard or thought, you know, the statement of, you know, you shouldn't tell, for example, a homeless person or <laughs> a poor person how to use the money because it's up to them. But, but I think, you know, you need to find some way of, of tackling this as a comprehensive issue, not just as a money problem. I think the beauty of something like UBI is, is the freedom that it gives you and the freedom that it gives you in order to pursue a path that you choose. And I think that's just like inherently such a such a nice and kind of relieving thought in my head. I don't know, because, you know, you you have the funds and you've got the ability to do something that you might have otherwise not been able to do. Like if that bit of money helps you to set up a business or it helps you to kind of do a course that you wanted to do, or if it helps you, you know, in any way or form, you are and being more fulfilled as a human being. But at the same time, I think a lot of it will also trickle down into like more economic activity. And it will be very hard to trace, right? Whether that is through your spending power, whether that is through your setting up a business and thereby employing more people and thereby, you know, contributing to, to the economy. I think that's the interesting bit of it. There's also this kind of debate as to who should get this money. Is, you know, because obviously UBI stands for universal basic income. So everyone should get the same lump sum of money monthly or however, you know, however a government decides to design it. And I'm, I really struggle with that question as to should everyone get it? Because in my head, I'm like, yes, everyone should get it because, you know, that's fair. But then on the other hand, I'm like, that's not really efficient because it doesn't go to the people that most need it. You see? Mm -hmm. And it's this kind of, in my head, <laughs> fairness versus efficiency. And where is that going to bring about the most kind of change, you know, in the lives of people? And that's something I struggle with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I mean, we need to really get more... Oh, we may or may not need to, but <laughs> some people would say we need to get more evidence on whether um, basically the conditionality of um, of a basic income mm -hmm. would make a difference in terms of the, the positive outcomes that, that it could create. Yeah, but I, I struggle with that conditionality, you know. I think there's other welfare tools in place that have plenty of conditionality. I think what I was trying, just trying to say is The fact that this doesn't have conditionality, the fact that it leaves you free to choose to do with it whatever you want to do with it, I think that's that's the strength of it. But I really am curious what it does with entrepreneurialism, what it does with creativity, what it does with, you know, finding solutions to problems that have not been found to. I'm really curious as to what it does for that. Regardless of everything we've said, what do we think, Sophie? Is the time for UBI? here is it gonna stay around after we've solved for this crisis or are we going to um go back to 
a small state, no involvement. What do you think? Yes, so Spain introduced, uh, uh, rolled out a UBI solution for all of its citizens. And so that will be a very interesting well situation to, to look, uh, look at further and see what's happening there. In terms of what people want, I think there's more and more of an awareness that, you know, the systems that we're in, uh, the way things are, are not really working very well, or at least they're not very working very well for most of us. Um, you know, we have a lot of you know, existential questions, you know, that all of us ask, you know, we ask ourselves and we realize that some of them are connected to feeling really disconnected with the system that's out there. And the, like you said so nicely, like the disconnection between the economic and the social system or economy and society. And, um, and, and also I think there's more of a, of a demand for, you know, the economy to work for the people. And so for the government to really be that actor, to fill in that gap or to make that change happening. Mm. So I'm always an optimist and obviously I like this idea. So I do think that, that there are going to be more such trends happening even after Corona. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, what do I think? I think people have a, not people, but society has a short-term memory. I think... I'm not, I don't want to say I believe in the cyclicality of history or at least like some sort of like ups and downs, but I think people, our generation, we that have gone through this, we won't forget this. And therefore, when people in our generation kind of resume office and, you know, are part of governments, they pr probably have this in the back of their mind. But what will happen after that? If, if nothing else like this happens, comes up back again, I think people will forget. And I don't think people or governments will kind of think about it in such a way as we have just thought about it. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is, obviously, governments have now become quite large over a really short period of time, right? They're, their spendings are through the roof. Cash is going to be printed left, right and center, etc., And I think that's going to stay like that for a while, because even looking back at like historical evidence, apparently after large wars and, and crises, governments that have expended and their spending has expended, that spending has stayed like that for a long period of time. And I think that's the right thing to do. Not saying that you should spend a lot, but just saying, you know, taking a, a leadership position and, you know, helping countries find their feet again and economies find their feet again and, you know, helping people through this crisis. I think that's the right thing to do. Do I think there's a place for UBI? I think what this will show is a really interesting empirical case. And I really hope someone does some like good analysis on, on you know, how effective was it when lump sums were given to people? Did it in some way or form help the economy? Because I think in my head, despite kind of the political ideologies that and the political waves that governments go through, I think there needs to be a case for UBI and and that case needs to be in our society nowadays it needs to be an economic case and it needs to be a case that you know almost like a business case does it work is it efficient is it going to help people if so why and if not 
why not? And then we can think about how can we design it in order to be efficient. That's a very pragmatic view and kind of doesn't encapsulate all the richness of our discussion just now. But I think that's the way forward because yes, there have been empirical, there has been empirical evidence. And yes, I know that empirical evidence is not the only thing that, you know, guides policymakers' decisions. There's so many other things like political ideology, like, you know, the current context of what things are happening. But I just think this has just made a clear case of UBI-like measures might be a useful way of getting up spending and, and a nice a tool to be used in economic crisis. I think that's just what it's brought to light. And I think I find that very, very interesting to have looked at. Yeah, I think, um, you know, this. I agree it's a very pragmatic um, view, but of course it's, a, I mean, it's a more realistic one. It's a very realistic one. And um the way, I mean, things are governed and decisions are being taken, That I mean, that's really how it is. Mm. I think maybe looking at the value of the discussion we just had is, you know, when you look at that business case and you when you look at what are the, the metrics maybe that you measure success on, you know, maybe those are the dimensions at which our, the, the types of, you know, reflections that we had kind of come into, because I think those are the things really that are changing, you know where it's not only anymore an economic or a purely, let's say, monetary, you know, economic uh, case. case, exactly. But um, social dimensions, environmental dimensions are coming in more and more in these sorts of decisions. And, I mean, of course, you can quantify them or you can, you know, relate them back to economic factors as well. But the fact that they're coming in means that there's that this is where kind of we have the discussion, like how do we value different aspects and then on and then making the decision, the case around that. Yeah. Yeah. I think for sure. Thanks everyone for joining our or listening into our conversation and really joining this podcast today. We hope, you know, you took away some interesting thoughts and were really inspired to think for yourself as well. We're going to share uh, some of these, well, the main thoughts or main, uh, you know, streams of, of thought that were discussed uh, today in articles as well. So you can read about them in a bit more detail. And we'd be really happy to hear from you. Yeah, we really hope to make this a, a discussion and some sort of uh, ongoing e exchange. Sure. Thank you for listening to the Currently Thinking podcast, where we talk about issues that move the world. If you liked what you heard, come say hi to us on Instagram at Currently Thinking Podcast. And let us know what you thought of today's episode. As always, keep being bold. Much love, everyone. Bye.